Welcome to the XTERRA Podcast. I'm Tom Patton. Space commerce is a worldwide industry, and at least two of the major players, Russia and China, could be considered enemies of the United States. Yet the U.S. has a long history of cooperation with Russia in space. But since the Russian invasion of Ukraine in February 2022, there have been increasing tensions between Russia and the U.S., which has spilled over into the commercial space arena. Over the next three podcasts, we'll be talking with global security consultant Namrata Goswami about three different regions, Russia, China, and India, beginning with the situation in Russia. Namrata, it's a pleasure to welcome you back to the podcast. Thank you, Tom, for having me. It's my pleasure. Namrata, as best as you can discern, what was Russian President Vladimir Putin thinking when he invaded Ukraine? Because on the surface, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Yes, actually, uh, when you look at it from the benefit of hindsight today, uh, Russia invaded Ukraine February 24, 2022. And so I think uh, it seems like Russia is going to have to commit to the long game, right? I think there were certain considerations uh, for President Putin when he decided to invade Ukraine. First of all, he very well knew that this goes against Article 2.4 of the United Nations Charter, and he Russia is a permanent member of the UN Security Council, so there is the uh, consequence of that. And so I think what he was strategically thinking was that for him, Ukraine formed a part of that larger, greater Russia imagination, the strategic imagination that historically this has been Russia's sphere of influence. And so the more Ukraine appeared to move towards NATO and more to the United States, I think his assertion and anger was that this shouldn't be the case. We saw this in 2014 with the occupation of Crimea already. Mm -hmm. And then you, of course, have Eastern Ukraine uh, that is uh, believed to have a minority Russian population. So he calculated that if I make a case that the Ukrainian government is targeting Russian minorities, I would have great support. I think the second calculation for him from a military point of view, where he completely miscalculated, I would say, is that this is going to be a quick victory. Russia's enormous power uh, with a military the size of 1.3 million, Ukrainian military is about 500,000, so much, mm -hmm. much lower. He believed that with that kind of force uh, demonstration, the Ukrainian military would give in. And if you remember, they had that long 40-mile convoy in the beginning to show right. force. And so I think those were the calculations. Uh, and with hindsight, he miscalculated is my perception. But, but, but Russia is rich in natural resources, but despite that, it's not a wealthy country. The ruble is pretty much in free fall and it's been cut off from the international banking system in large part. And it has to pay for imports that it does get by utilizing its gold reserves. So how sustainable is that scenario? So if you look at Russian reserve today, uh, in terms of the current number, it's about 630 billion, but they're all in uh, other currencies, for example, the dollar, euro. And uh, as you said, they have about uh, 2,300 tons of gold. 
Now they're using that, but the the way this system works is that once you have sanctions put in place, which Russia has now, right. everybody down the chain of that particular sanction, for example, the brokers, uh, the other banks that actually uh, agree to uh, use your reserves to buy or, uh, you know, keep the ruble stable with the Central Bank of Russia giving a particular direction, that's not going to happen because of sanctions today, especially Western sanctions. So uh, Russia's use of its uh, goal, uh, the reserves of gold, I don't think it's sustainable in the long run because of the particular sanctions in place. And secondly, what Russia is trying to do is to diversify, right? So for example, uh, Russia and China have agreed that certain uh, gas uh, exports by Russia will be brought in the uh, Renbibi, bought in the Renbibi, and they will they will basically trade using the Russia Chinese currency. But that's not really the uh, global currency. And so, how long they can sustain that? Already, you see there are forecasts that Russia's economy is going to go downturn. Uh, the forecast for next year is not good. Uh, this year, it's about 1.2% uh, growth, uh, including by international monetary fund statistics. But uh, in my estimation, how long they can sustain this, given the sanctions, uh, given the fact that their economy is not doing well today and that they are being, uh, they're not able to trade openly uh, and that they don't have access to their $630 billion of reserve. Uh, will hurt them very badly. And uh, the sustainability factor will be uh, put up to question. Now, besides the economic issues, Russia's been losing population. According to the United Nations, it's been steadily losing population since the 1970s. And now is down to a fertility rate of just 1.82 births per woman, where 2.1 is considered stable. And in addition, Putin is sending the country's young men to Ukraine to be used basically as cannon fodder. So again, is that sustainable, if at all, and can it be justified? Oh, that's a great question, because there are two questions there, right? Is it sustainable? Can it be justified? So uh, as I said before, uh, Russia's military uh, is about 1,330,000 active duty reserve and paramilitary troops. So they have a very large military. And as you said, their replacement rate today, according to the statistics, is about 1.52% uh, okay. of the population. Uh, so that's the latest statistics. Ukraine actually has a lower uh, statistics than uh, Russia. So as I said, the Ukrainian military is about uh, 500,000 uh, uh, military, and their replacement rate uh, is about uh, one. Uh, 1.3%. So, uh, and Ukraine, it's interesting because the Russian median age is about 39, Ukraine is about 44. So both nations have this struggle. Now, uh, what Russia has done, as you know, Tom, recently is to raise the conscription age from uh, 1827 to 30 years. So men till the age of 30 can be called to serve for a year so that they actually address this particular uh, problem of uh, recruiting men to go to the to the Ukrainian conflict because uh, Russian deaths is enormous. Uh, till uh, August, uh, Russia has lost about three hundred thousand uh, men in the frontier. Ukraine has lost about seventy thousand. Seventy thousand. So it's a it's a very costly war. You know, it's interesting. The war is like uh, the wars we fought in the First World War, which were trench warfare and minefields. And this is the kind of war that is being fought in the Ukrainian battlefield today. 
And so there are losses on both sides. So what, but what, whether it's justified and can Putin sustain it? My concern is that Putin can actually take in thousands of deaths because of the fact that he has a much larger population than Ukraine and his ability to conscript is high. It's a dictatorship. Mm -hmm. uh, secondly, the pool of men between the age of uh, 18 to 30 is about 1 million. Uh, based on statistics, much higher than Ukraine. And so he might be able to sustain it and justify it. Uh, well, you know, it's interesting. So because of the large number of Russian deaths on the battlefield, the argument made is that this is going to become very unpopular because of body bags, which happened with the United States in regard to Vietnam. Right. I would say that what Putin has done is that he has equated the Ukrainian conflict to the First World War. Uh, when uh, or Second World War, uh, beg your pardon, when Russia uh, was a part of it, and Russia lost about eight million men in that particular yeah. conflict. So he, because he's equating it to an existential threat to Russia, uh, he would be able to sustain it. This war of attrition for a long time. I hope I'm wrong, but looking at the statistics, looking at the narrative he has put out as to Ukraine being an existential crisis to Russia, including his own regime. Uh, the fact that uh, they have a larger pool of men, their population is much larger than Ukraine. So uh, he'll be able to take more risk. Uh, and uh, sadly, Ukraine has a, has a much smaller population. And the recent analysis is that Ukraine is becoming much more shy in terms of losing more uh, people in the frontier because they've lost a lot uh, as well. So Putin will justify it. Putin will sustain it. In my mind, this kind of warfare is not sustainable and justified. We saw what happened in long wars, but right. he will be able to sustain it for some time, is my point. But those conscripts are not necessarily the best fighting force. Uh, a lot of them really don't want to be there. They don't want to be shipped off to Ukraine. Um, in what many of them, if if the reports are to be believed, what many of them think is a, is a, a losing cause. Yes, actually, that's a good point, because you're sending uh, recruits that you have to train very quickly uh, to the to the battlefield. Right. And so I would say that the reports that we are hearing and I saw some of the reports that come out of Russia as well and Ukraine is that. Uh, because of the large number of deaths, uh, there is the uh, concern that and because of the age being uh, increased. But we uh, we don't know. So uh, as you said, there would be questions of training. There would be questions of how effective this particular military is. But it seems like this is a battle of uh, very high deaths. And mm -hmm. it's based on minefields. And it's based on artillery. And it's based on getting into the fight uh, face to face. So in that, numbers would matter. Uh, and what is very, uh, very interesting is that despite Ukraine having Western weapons, they seem to be losing a lot of their weapons on the battlefield. A recent report in the New York Times pointed that out. Excellent analysis of what's happening in the battlefield. So um, I would agree that training would uh, it would be it would be these conscripts might be highly trained. But uh, the fact that they're able to get it, the fact that the war has mixed uh, narrative within Russia because it's seen as an existential threat. You know, Tom, what is interesting is that when you are a Russian citizen and you are told or you have a historical feeling that this is about fighting for the fatherland, 
there is a very different sense of uh, commitment. It's about land, blood, and soil, right? And so people are willing to accept high amount of debts. And so uh, that's the story that a Russian, uh, uh, whoever voluntary or coerced conscription uh, are hearing. And so we don't really know uh, how long this can continue, though. Well, let's turn the conversation to space because Russia has announced plans to work with China on a space station and a lunar base. But is that feasible or is it merely a pipe dream? So, yeah, so Russia and China agreed to work together on an international lunar research station in 2021. And so, uh, no, it's not a pipe dream. They actually continue to have that particular relationship. Uh, they have announced certain goals collaboratively. Uh, and so the idea is that with China's collaboration, Russia will be able to construct a research station on the moon by 2036. And given the fact that China, which is the lead actor in this particular relationship, is able to demonstrate lunar missions successfully, including soft landing on the far side and bringing back samples and showing us how construction might be possible in space, they've already successfully constructed their permanent space station in today's age. So uh, I would say that the commitment will continue. Now, having said that, it's also interesting to know that the China-Russia relationship is occurring at the time where Russia's weaknesses are also getting exposed, right? right. In terms of the ability to win a battle quickly in Ukraine, the effectiveness of the Russian military, the effectiveness of Russia's cybersecurity, uh, space ability, and now, of course, ability to go to the moon has been questioned. So that could create certain uh, actually bargaining points where China is going to completely lead this effort because China is the country that actually has the capability today. And so, uh, but having said that, because of strategic purposes, because of the fact that China wants partners in its uh, international lunar research station that includes Venezuela, uh, the relationship will continue. And we'll talk about Luna 25 in just a little bit, but let's let's stay with, with Russia and its current space program for a moment, because they say they're ostensibly leaving the ISS partnership in 2028, but that date does seem to continue to slip. Will they really leave, in your opinion, and what would be the cost to their space program? So uh, Russia has uh, been stating for some time since 2022 before, in, in fact, before they uh, invaded Ukraine, that they want to leave the International uh, Space Station and uh, build their own station or collaborate with China, right? They haven't said officially whether they'll collaborate with China. And recently, what is interesting is that Russia put out a statement saying that they want to build a space station in collaboration with the BRICS nation, which is Brazil, India, and China. And as you know, China and India are major space powers. So uh, there hasn't been any response from the other BRIC nations, uh, South Africa included, but uh, Russia has put it out. So uh, I would say that they will, they will uh, leave the International Space Station for purposes of uh, being able to then uh, build their own or build other collaborative structures. Uh, they will not leave it though by 2024. Uh, because they do want to have that bargaining chip. They still want to have some level of uh, connection with the West, including with the United States. 
And as you know, uh, they are launching uh, their cosmonauts to the International Space Station pretty frequently. So mm-hmm. that relationship creates that uh, negotiating posture. So they might calculate as to how much their advantage it is. Secondly, as you said, uh, that the importance of Russia, the fact that they are contributing to the propulsion system of the International Space Station makes them a major partner uh, in terms of the ISS. So those technological calculations will also play in, in terms of whether they will leave. Uh, They might leave on a later date, say by 2030, but the ISS also has a particular life, including from the United States. So we'll have to wait and see. Uh, I would say that uh, they might uh, shift the date from 2024, which is next year, which is actually coming up very soon. I'm talking with security consultant Namrata Goswami on the Xterra podcast. Take a moment right now to click subscribe to make sure you don't miss any of the podcasts or if you're watching on YouTube, any of the videos from Xterra, the Journal of Space Commerce. Now, the U.S. and Russia are still cooperating in space. And later this month, Roscosmos astronaut Konstantin Borisov will fly as part of the Cruise 7 mission to ISS aborted SpaceX Dragon 2 capsule. Now, do you see any chance of this type of cooperation continuing after Russia leaves the ISS partnerships? And what are the implications for those international relations? Um, uh, can you can you uh, repeat the question again so that I can uh, give you a specific answer? Sorry. Yeah, it, it's it, it basically is because Russia is is still sending cosmonauts, as you said, and one of them is going to fly on Cruise Seven. Um, are there implications to their participation in ISS beyond where they might have, say they want to leave the International Space Station partnership? Do you think they'll continue to send crew on uh, American commercial rockets? Yeah, so um, I would say that I asked you to repeat it because this question is very strategic and the United States needs to think through this as well. Right. So, uh there are certain developments with Roscosmos that needs to be considered now. Uh, if you, as you know, the International Space Station, the agreement was done between Bill Clinton and Boris Yeltsin. Uh, it was not Putin. Uh, and they agreed to come together for the purposes, uh, the fact that the Cold War ended and that there was the uh, absolute uh, Uh, strategic rationale to build something together and to show the world that two countries that were uh, adversaries during the Cold War can actually collaborate. Now, fast forward to today, uh, Roscosmos is also changing in terms of its uh, basic uh, make. So, for example, uh, what has come to my notice, including based on open source reporting, is that Roscosmos is now actually taking part in terms of recruiting for the Ukraine conflict. Mm-hmm. So they have a regiment called the Ural Regiment uh, that includes employees from Roscosmos. So when somebody joins from Roscosmos to this particular uh, regiment, uh, they are given a $1,200 bonus and supposedly their salary is much higher than other members of Roscosmos. Uh, Roscosmos uh, posters, including uh, that particular regiment, uh, you know, uh, taking pictures with spacecrafts have been used for recruitment purposes as well. And so given that shift and given that uh, critical change in Roscosmos, not just as a simple civilian space agency, which is the reason why 
NASA collaborates with Roscosmos, but the fact that they are directly contributing to the invasion of Ukraine, including the war efforts, I think there is serious consideration as to whether this is to the advantage of countries coming together in the International Space Station with a particular nation whose space agency that sends those cosmonauts is contributing directly uh, mm -hmm. to the war effort in Ukraine. So I would say that times have changed since the 1990s when this particular agreement was put in place. There is a lot of investment in it. There's also a lot of technological collaboration. There is the feel-good factor that you're collaborating with a country that you usually do not see as a, a like-minded player. Uh, and so all those feel-good factors are actually getting challenged today, given the fact that Russia's uh, space sector and the aerospace industry is contributing to the war effort. So to justify that kind of long-term collaboration without a shift in the circumstances that uh, all these nations find themselves uh, is going to be something that NASA and the United States also needs to reconsider in my perspective. As you as you pointed out, Roscosmos is a, a civilian agency, and yet it's a government agency, much like yeah. like NASA is. So that begs the question: Is there a Russian analog to Elon Musk or to uh, Jeff Bezos? Can they develop a commercial space program even in the long term? So uh, that question actually is something that I have also thought through. For example, when uh, the United States. Uh, announced the Artemis Accord to go back to the moon. And today, mm -hmm. actually, India is a signatory to the Artemis Accords, which is a major feat in United States-based diplomacy. But it's also interesting that the Artemis Accord and every U.S. effort since George W. Bush has very much focused on building the private sector. Right. Now, I say this because I was looking at Russia at the same time. And Russia, of course, came up with statements pointing out that the Artemis Accord is not legal. It's an effort to colonize the moon. It's an effort to privatize the moon. They do not believe in private industry taking uh, the lead in building technology. So in that scenario, I do not see uh, Elon Musk-like character being able to sustain or build their space agency in Russia. So uh, what is interesting is that while you have Russian commercial companies, they continue to uh, follow a model from the Soviet Union time, which is a very centralized control model of decision-making and resource uh, distribution. And so uh, what is fascinating is that while on paper, uh, you would see that these farms are uh, projected as private farms, but then when you actually look into their organization and institutional structure, they are partially private and follow a very uh, determined path where Roscosmos is the leading agency. An example for from history is that uh, Russia formed the International, International Launch Services, uh, ILS, in 1995. It was a joint venture between, uh, I think, Lockheed Martin, uh, uh, Khrunichev, and Energia, and it was mm -hmm. a subsidiary of Roscosmos. Uh, and so what is fascinating is that that particular alliance structure is very much dominated and dictated by Roscosmos, whereas Lockheed Martin and Boeing formed a launch, United Launch Alliance, right. but which is an actual private entity that uh, launches the Atlas uh, rockets, right? And so you can see that in that particular scenario, given the fact that Roscosmos likes centralization, do not want to give up power, 
very much dictates the organizational structure of Russian firms. I do not see someone like Elon Musk uh, even being able to succeed and innovate in that environment. We talked a little bit earlier about uh, Luna 25, which was Russia's first lunar mission in 25 years. And that unfortunately crashed while attempting to land, uh, I guess, just yesterday, Sunday, as we record this podcast. Again, can Russia keep this up financially and what could they gain scientifically, if uh, rather politically, if not scientifically? So Russia actually had uh, announced a lunar program in 2018. Uh, and their program was about, of course, launching the Luna 25, but a long-term program of building an orbiter module and finally a habitation module by 2040. And then, as you know, uh, given that particular mapping, which very much coincided with China's uh, lunar uh, program that has very similar ambitions, they collaborated and signed a memorandum of understanding. So in that, in that model, uh, I would say that China will also contribute to the effort, might contribute in terms of financial investment. Russia would contribute in terms of scientific and technological know-how. But China is also a leader now in terms of building lunar program, have done things that Russia hasn't done. So fast forward to yesterday. So mm -hmm. uh, the Luna 25 uh, was a demonstration model uh, I think if I remember right, the Luna 24 was last launched in 1976. Mm -hmm. And since then, Russia has not gone back to the moon. Uh, Russia has not showcased current technology uh, to soft land on the moon. So I would say that the failure of the Luna 25 and the fact that they were not able to control the rocket boosters and slow down the aircraft and control it tells you that they are working on or did not have time to simulate enough as to how mm -hmm. do you deal with such a scenario, right? How do you correct it? I know lunar landings are hard. India tried in 2019 to land on the lunar South Pole and failed. Japan failed this year. But Russia also has institutional knowledge. So I would say fast forward to today, maybe they did not carry forward that institutional knowledge. It's lost because the older generation of scientists are no more and the younger generation do not have that kind of access to that kind of expertise. As you know, mm -hmm. Russia is also having a brain drain uh, in its expertise and technological capability. So given all that, I would say that the only way Russia can sustain this is to collaborate with China in terms of financial commitment and agreement. Now, politically, what would have Luna 25 accomplished if it succeeded? So it would have shown to the world that Russia still has the capability, is a major space power, has the ability to land on the moon today, which even the United States does not have, uh, and is trying to build through the Artemis Accord and the uh, Commercial Lunar Payload Service Program. Right. And so that would have showed Putin in a very good light, right? That politically, that would have been a message Putin would have sent to, for example, the European Space Agency that cancel all the lunar uh, agreements with Russia, that we Russia can do it alone, does not need the electronics with the European Space Agency. But they failed, right? They crashed, which is tragic. Any mission that fails in space makes you feel, uh, you know, tragic about it. But uh, now he cannot uh, use that politically. He cannot tell China and bargain with China that, look, we actually landed on the South Pole. Even you haven't done it. So we are a major player 
and uh, we are beneficial for your space program. Now I think Russia's bargaining power has come down vis-a-vis -vis China as well. So the political implications of the Luna 25 failing uh, is rather stark. You talked a little bit about um, the ISS, and we know that it is scheduled for decommissioning probably around 2030. And NASA has talked a lot about uh, giving that over to commercial enterprises. And there are a lot of companies, I think four, that are trying to develop private commercial space stations. Um, when you talk about Russia and how they'll continue to do their microgravity experimentation and those kinds of things, how important is it for them to be able to have access to those private space stations? Do you think they will, or will they be reliant on China then and and the Chinese space station that was recently assembled? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so if you look at uh, the fact that they would need access to uh, do those microgravity tests uh, will remain important scientifically, right? I'm sure today Roscosmos is going through a whole amount of investigation, the scientists, I wonder uh, what their status is, because after all, uh, the missions that Roscosmos, especially in the post-Ukraine uh, scenario, wants to accomplish are so political in nature, right? So in that context, and I, I say that because that will be the calculation for Russia in the long run. So I see them making an effort to build their own space station to showcase that they, despite Luna 25 failing and failures in space are not, uh, you know, unknown. I mean, they are- they Not happen. uncommon. Yes, they they're not uncommon. You know, <laughs> the United States had failures. India, as I said, failed to land on the lunar south pole in 2019. Ice space of Japan oh. uh, could not soft land this year. So it's not Elon like- Elon Musk has blown up some rockets. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly, right? with Starship. So this is not uncommon. I think the the fact that they tried to land before India uh, and took a very direct path to the moon adds to the drama, right? Mm -hmm. So this raised the stakes for India succeeding on Wednesday, August 23rd, where they will uh, attempt to land. So uh, to answer your question, uh, I, I would think if I can look out to the future, say 10 years from now, I would say that Russia would uh, want to build their own space station to uh, rebuild their reputation uh, because I'm sure they feel the, the, the pain of not being able to succeed with the Luna 25. And then secondly, uh, they would uh, want to collaborate with China because China, after all, already has a space station the size of Mir, uh, mm -hmm. the Tiangong. And so that's the future I see. I see the... Russian collaboration with the US uh, and other nations on the ISS fracturing because of the political uh, connections mm -hmm. to it. So not because of any scientific reason. Actually, I'm, I'm sure the scientists wants to collaborate, the cosmonauts want to go to the ISS, build that space culture and, and uh, collaborative effort. But these are such political missions that politics will always determine it. We've talked a lot about the relationship between Russia and China in space, and we'll talk about China a little bit more in depth in a couple of weeks. But is that really a real relationship, a, a convenience? Uh, is it a real relationship or is it something a little more nefarious? So uh, I study international relations and grand strategy. I would argue that nations 
are not always altruistic or benign when they build <laughs> partnerships. <laughs> it's not just China, Russia. There are really <laughs> <laughs> there are opportunistic relationships everywhere. So I would say that with uh, the the China Russia relationship, I think it is based on strategic calculations on both sides. Uh, and they started signaling uh, the desire to come even more together uh, in terms of uh, building their uh, joint uh, understanding of the world. So they signed a joint statement in which they identified the U.S.-led world order as a order that is adversarial and wanting to build their own world order. Uh, we also need to remember that Russia has several uh, engagements with other nations of the world, including nations in Asia and Africa and Southeast Asia. So that particular history also matters. Russia is not a small player in the international system. So that is important to remember again. And so I think uh, fast forward to today, the relationship is based on strategic calculations of opportunity and threat. I use that word uh, deliberately. So the threat mm -hmm. is that both China and Russia view the US-led international order as adversarial, uh, and especially the Communist Party of China and Putin's regime, because they are authoritarian regimes, they are not democratically elected, their legitimacy hangs in the balance because of course, uh, populations within both nations cannot have their say freely. So we do not know what kind of counter might come to this particular regime. So they see the US that world, world order, which is democratic as a threat. Secondly, uh, the opportunity they see is that here are two uh, major powers uh, that have uh, military capability, that have space capability, that have a desire to build an alternate system and also an ability to build an alternate economic system that China wants to build. Uh, mm -hmm. Recently, China also signed an agreement with Saudi Arabia that they might actually trade their oil in uh, the Chinese currency. So uh, that it's also a relationship of opportunity. And I would say that given the way the strategic alignments are playing out today, uh, I don't see the relationship, at least China-Russia fracturing. What I see is that China has a wake-up call in terms of Russian military capability as well as whether Russian economy is going to be an asset or going to become a burden for China. So those calculations will uh, start playing into the Chinese mindset. India is going to be our third in our, on our series here of talking about these relationships, but they, they and the Soviet Union and now Russia have enjoyed relatively warm relations. But when the invasion of Ukraine first took place, India seemed defensive of and partial to the Russian position. It's now become apparent that the Modi government is kind of taking a harsher view of Russia recently. So what are some of the factors that have brought on that change? Yeah, so that is a that is a great uh, topic to think through. So as you said, when Russia was invaded in February 2022, India was hesitant to agree to United Nations resolutions, especially those brought by the U.S. that this is a threat to international peace. Uh, at that time, India was a member of the, not the not a permanent uh, P5 member, but a member of the UN Security Council. And I listened to the Indian representative saying that we abstain, right? And so I think the reasons for abstention was that 
uh, India has had a long-term relationship with Russia, uh, including the Soviet Union. Uh, it's a relationship based on a long history. So it's not very easy for two nations that have a long historical relationship that actually uh, is not just state to state, but societal level. Uh, there were a lot of exchanges between generations uh, including my father's generation during the Soviet Union. So there was this relationship of friendship. Uh, Russia came to India's uh, support during India's uh, 1971 war with Pakistan. Uh, Soviet Union came to the support of India. So India remembers all that. So I think all that played in. The other more tactical calculation was that India is dependent on Russian military hardware, including fighter planes and their parts and components and maintenance. So to go against a nation on whom you're dependent for your security uh, could be a big strategic blunder for you, right? So those calculations played in. But as you see today, uh, Modi has is taking foreign policy postures that is strategically partnering with the United States uh, Modi visited the U.S. this year and India, as you know, signed the Artemis Accord, which was actually mm -hmm. a big signal to Russia because Russia has uh, been very critical of the Artemis Accord. And so I think the reasons why this particular Indian foreign policy posture has come about is that it's connected also to India's own internal uh, you know, calculations and strategic thinking. So uh, we tend to think that when nations take foreign policy decisions, uh, they are decisions based on a particular country's relationship with just that country. But the fact that at the time when China, Russia were coming together and China signed several agreements with uh, China, Russia signed several agreements with China, uh, President Putin visited China just before uh, China invaded Ukraine. President Xi Jinping visited Russia this year and penned an op-ed. Uh, in Jinghua saying that the relationship is the most important relationship. At the same time, China was escalating its border conflict with India. Uh, mm -hmm. India, China has a disputed border uh, in the northeast of India, an area where I originate from, and also in the northwest of India, which is close to Kashmir and Ladakh. And China claims uh, a lot of territory, uh, which uh, is governed by India. For example, Arunachal Pradesh, a state in Northeast and uh, Aksai Chin area. And the fact that the conflict after several years got very aggressive in 2020, where Indian military personnel lost their lives, the fact that China is continuing to intrude into the Indian side of the line of actual control, and at the same time, uh, China-Russia relationship is getting closer, I think it is a signal to Russia that there are consequences to uh, partnering with another country and getting closer to another country when that particular country is threatening India's sovereignty and territorial integrity. So those are the reasons why I think uh, India is taking those decisions. Now, coming to space, uh, Russia has had a lot of delays in terms of its own missions because it's completely concentrated on the Ukrainian conflict. Uh, Indian uh, astronauts trained in the Yuri Gagarin Cosmonaut Training Center. But this year, India signed an agreement with uh, the United States called the Comprehensive Partnership Agreement, where Indian astronauts will train in the Johnson Center uh, for the first time. So you can see that India is taking these decisions, which are also very tactical decisions, That which is the nation that is actually able to meet your goals and deadlines 
and has the ability to enable your own technological uh, base as well. So that also are, are part of the Indian calculation uh, based on India's national interest. We are just about out of time, Namrata, but I want you to look out over the next 10 to 15 years and talk about the role that Russia might be able to play in space commerce. So, uh, I mean, Russia did take efforts uh, to build a commercial sector, So, and but this was not under President Putin. So I think the one thing that we, especially when we talk about space commerce, because as you know, and we'll talk about this more when we speak about India, India also recently took a decision to completely privatize its space manufacturing. Uh, mm -hmm. And so that's a big shift for India, which had a very Russian model before the 2023 Indian official policy. And we see how uh, the private sector has actually built American capability. I mean, without SpaceX and Blue Origin, uh, America would not have the launch systems it has today to go to the International Space Station, for example, uh, through SpaceX's launch capability, right? right? And so before that, it was dependent on Russia. So you can see the importance of private space for Russia. So what is interesting is that in uh, 2010, uh, Russian President Medvedev launched the, uh, I, I, I don't know how they pronounce it, but it's called the Skolkovo Innovation Center. Mm -hmm. And that included space and telecommunication cluster. And what was fascinating was that Still about three or four years ago, that particular cluster was about building Russian space capability in the commercial sector. And there were about 180 participants, uh, which is pretty high. And one of the participants uh, called uh, Daria Aerospace actually won a contract in 2012, and they launched two uh, Perseus M microsatellites in the United mm -hmm. States in 2014. And Daria is still active. So I would say that if I look out 10 years, the one thing that Russia might learn a lesson uh, with its centralized state-owned, state-built uh, space sector, uh, they've been suffering several uh, you know, problems with their launch systems as well, that uh, maybe the state centralized system does not work with the Luna 25 failing as well. Maybe you do need to innovate. Maybe you do need to build your private space sector. And you do have examples where this effort had already been put in place. And so I would say that in the next 10 years, maybe in the next, uh, uh, say, two years, Russia will have a change in its space policy to actually encourage its private space sector. Now, having said that, private space sector requires funding. Right. Uh, and that is the big issue where India and the U.S. are taking decisions to fund their private space sector. Uh, with the Ukrainian conflict, with the uh, sanctions, uh, the funding could be a major issue uh, because you need money to test your systems. And so in the next 10 years, because space takes a long time to build, uh, while they might take a decision to uh, support space commerce within their own structure, learn lessons from the Luna 25 failure, they will still face major challenges in regard to funding and finding investments, given the sanctions that are in place today. And again, there's no Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos with very, very deep pockets who are willing to spend a lot of it to advance their, their dreams about space. Yeah, also because, I mean, the one thing that people don't realize is that 
uh, both Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos with Deep Pocket succeeded because the U.S. space environment is very supportive of right. commercial development. The United States is taking so many major decisions in relaxing its regulatory framework, in supporting public-private partnership across administrations, be it the George W. Bush, be it uh, President Obama, be it uh, President Trump, and now with President Biden. There is a huge fo focus on building the private space sector, including building private space stations, right? So Russia does not have that supportive framework. And so even if you have a Elon Musk in Russia, the fact that he will never, he or she, will never be allowed to be independent in terms of innovation. There will be too much intrusion from the Russian space uh, sector. There will be Roscosmos anxieties uh, that will spill over. And there is a lot of corruption in the Russian right. space sector as well. So the overarching framework to support the uh, the rise of a Elon Musk-like character is very limited in the Russian scenario. Well, and of course, we all, I mean, it's fairly obvious that SpaceX would not be where it is today without a lot of U.S. government, a lot of U.S. taxpayers' money that went into government contracts. So there's there's always that dynamic as well. Namrata, we are out of time, but I look forward very much to these next couple of podcasts when we talk about China and India. So thank you very much, and we'll see you soon. Thank you, Tom. It's a wonderful pleasure to talk to you. Namrata Goswami is an international security consultant, and we'll be taking next week off from the podcast for the Labor Day holiday. But when we return in two weeks, Namrata will join us again, and we'll discuss China's role in space commerce. And that's going to do it for this edition of the Xterra podcast. Check out our YouTube channel, and be sure to click on subscribe so you can stay up to date on developments in space commerce and be notified when we post new videos. You can also get daily space commerce news at XterraJSC.com. And one thing more, be sure to connect with us on LinkedIn and follow us on X at XterraJSC. Until next time, I'm Tom Patton. Thanks for joining us.